Well, it's good to see you all here this morning as we continue in our series on Celebrate. If you're worshiping with us online this morning, why, we welcome you as well. Glad you've tuned in. Hope that it will be an encouragement to you as well. We're in Leviticus chapter 23. If you want to turn to that in your scriptures or on your uh, tablet or uh, on your phone, wherever you are using God's Word, just turn to uh, Leviticus chapter 23. The CBS Network introduced a new TV series in January called Ransom. It's about a team of negotiators who go into very tense situations that often involve like a hostage or somebody else's life is being threatened. The circumstances demand someone with great expertise to bridge the seemingly insurmountable divide between the two sides that are at odds in the series uh, episode. Now, the main character is a, is a guy by the name of Eric Beaumont, and he's not a government official. He's not a part of law enforcement. He is an expert negotiator, and his recurring line in his negotiations goes something like this, I'm all about saving lives, not losing them. Ransom. Ransom, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is to free from captivity or punishment by paying a price. To free from captivity or punishment by paying a price. In other words, a ransom is a price paid to buy back. And ransom is the overarching theme of what we're going to explore this morning, which Leviticus 23 identifies, interestingly, not as a feast, this is a fast, and it was certainly one of God's more unique appointed times. Now, if the Feast of Tabernacles, which we studied last week, was the most joyous feast of the year, then the Day of Atonement that we're studying this week was the most holy and solemn day of the year. It's still observed, by the way. It appears on your calendar. This fall, it is on September the 30th, and on your calendar, it will appear as Yom Kippur. Yom is the Hebrew word for day. Kippur is Hebrew for covering or ransom. That's what atonement means. Where God covers our sin. Where God ransom pays the price to buy back from our sins. Now marking this day in the life of the Hebrew families was not optional. This was mandatory. It was appointed by God. Exodus 30 tells us that it is most holy to the Lord. And this is how it's spelled out in Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 26. The Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. Do no work on that day, because it is the day of atonement, when atonement is made for you before the Lord your God. Anyone who does not deny himself on that day must be cut off from his people. I will destroy among his people anyone who does work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come wherever you live. It is a Sabbath of rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. Now, unlike Passover and Pentecost and Tabernacles, this was not one of those days where Jews from all over the region were, were commanded to converge on Jerusalem. No, on this day, no matter where you lived, 
you set aside this day as a most solemn day. The Jewish people fasted, prayed, and abstained from sexual intimacy as a way of focusing their hearts and minds on what God was going to do for them. In the first place, this moment in time reflected the battle between God and sin, for on this day, the people believed that God was taking away their sins. They would be forgiven. This is why it's such a solemn day. As a matter of fact, for the 10 days leading up to the Day of Atonement, Jewish people would do good deeds. They would prepare their hearts and minds by being extra kind. They would greet one another with words something like this. May your name be inscribed in the book of life. I kind of like that. Beats howdy or hi, doesn't it? May your name be inscribed in the book of life. What they were doing for 10 days was preparing themselves. They wanted to have their hearts and minds in line with God because on this day of atonement, God was going to do a great work in them. The events surrounding the day of atonement, you see, dealt with the issue that is near and dear to our hearts today. How can an imperfect, sinful person be restored to a perfect and sinless God? Now, this is the recurring theme of God's word, beginning in Genesis 3 when, when sin entered this world. And while we're powerless to solve the issue, God is not. God had a plan from the very beginning of time. And it is that solution that is captured in the theme of the Day of Atonement as it pictures for us what God is going to do in the future when he sends his son. Now, the main scene that, that takes place with the Day of Atonement happens in a room that is 15 foot by 15 foot by 15 foot. It is a perfect cube. It was the back room of the tabernacle, later the temple. It came behind the holy place. This small cub cubicle of a room was called the Holy of Holies or the Most Holy Place. And in that room, there was this great curtain that divided the holy place from the Holy of Holies. And if you peeled back the curtain, if you drew back the curtain, you would find the Ark of the Covenant that was there. This was the only furnishing that was in this room. The Ark of the Covenant was overlaid with gold. On the top of it was this beautiful carved piece. It was carved out of solid <clears throat> gold, by the way. The cherubim on top of this lid reached over so that their wings were almost touching in the very center. It was called the mercy seat, and it rested on top of the ark. The ark contained the tablets of stone that Moses brought down off the mountains, Aaron's rod that budded, and a bowl or a pot of manna. This mercy seat, this Ark of the Covenant, represented the presence of God. The only person allowed into that room was the high priest, the chief negotiator, mediator of the people of Israel who went between the people and God. And he was only allowed in that room on one day out of the year, which was this, the Day of Atonement. Here's what happened. The high priest had to prepare himself first before he could do anything for the people. And so on that day and the days leading up to it, he prepared his heart and mind. Then when the day of atonement arrived, he took a bull, offered the bull as a sacrifice for his own personal sins, drained some of the bowl of blood into a bowl, and then took that bowl along with live coals that were from the altar of sacrifice and two handfuls, the Bible says, of incense, and he carried those into the Holy of Holies, 
put the incense on top of the live coals. The, fill, the smoke of the incense filled the room, and he took the blood of the bull that was in that bowl, and he dipped his fingers in it and sprinkled it on the mercy seat seven times. We're back to that number seven. Remember how important that number seven is in Scripture. Once that was done, he departed, left, and came back to the front of the temple or tabernacle area. Now, the high priest, what he wore as the high priest is just fascinating to me. I mean, beautiful in his vestments, but they were very significant. They were, well, very symbolic. For instance, the high priest, when he was dressed in his vestments, had this breastplate that he wore, and on this breastplate were 12 different stones. Each one of these precious stones, being different, was carved with a different name of the tribes of Israel. It was God's way and the high priest's way of saying that the needs of the people always rest on my heart. The breastplate was fastened on the top with two stones. Each of these stones had six of the tribal names carved on it. And it was the high priest's way. It was God's way of saying that he bore the burdens of the people on his shoulders. The hem of his robe was covered with pomegranates and little bells so that whenever he was inside the temple doing his work, when you could not see him, you could hear him and knew that he was doing his mediating work for you. But on this day, he did not wear these beautiful, symbolic, significant garments. He laid those aside on this day, the day when sin was to be taken care of. The high priest wore simply the lowliest, humblest of garments, a simple linen robe. Once he had offered sacrifices for his own sin, he came back to the front of the temple to renew his role as mediator of the people. This then becomes, folks, the tale of two goats. Selected beforehand, two male goats, had to be male goats, not female goats, each one year old were presented to the high priest at the entrance of the temple. Now, now note this. They were one year old. This day was not proactive, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was retroactive. On the Day of Atonement, God would take care of the sins of the people for the past year. That's why the goat was one year old. Don't miss the symbolism here. Jesus, who is eternal, the same yesterday, today, and forever, takes away our sin once and for all. His was not an annual atonement, but an everlasting atonement. How amazing, how awesome is our God. So the high priest would then cast lots over the two goats to determine which goat would be the Lord's goat. In other words, which goat would be sacrificed and offered for the, to the Lord for the sins of the people. And then the high priest, when that was determined, took the bowl, drained some of the blood of the goat into that bowl, along with the incense, went back in behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, did the same thing again, took his fingers, dipped it into the bowl, sprinkled it on the mercy seat, seven times for the nation. Now, folks, this is where it gets interesting. When he came back out, the second goat, with the second goat, the, the high priest would lay his hands on the goat's head and then confess onto the goat the sins of the nation, as if transferring to this goat the guilt and the shame of the entire Hebrew people. This goat was then led out into the wilderness where the people would never see it again. And the name of this goat? Scapegoat. That's where we get our term. This is what the Bible calls it, the scapegoat. 
What I'm about to share with you is fascinating. Now, it does not come from Scripture, but it does come from rabbinical writings. It comes from the Talmud. It comes from Josephus, the great historian that writes about the Jewish nation at the time of Christ. At the time that the scapegoat was chosen, the high priest would take a wool, scarlet, or crimson cord and tie part of that cord around the horns of the goat. As we are told, the other part of that cord was hung at the entrance to the tabernacle or on the door of the temple. And then the goat, being led by the appointed person, was taken out into the wilderness, approximately 12 miles away, where the goat was pushed over a cliff and died. When the goat died, miraculously, the scarlet cord that hung on the door of the temple changed from scarlet to white this was a divine sign to the people that God had accepted their sacrifice and their sins were forgiven. The sign was based in Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. It captured what we read in Isaiah 44, 22. I have swept away. Your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist, return to me for I have redeemed or ransomed you. Or Psalm 103, the psalmist writes, He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. And as far as east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. When the scapegoat was led off into the wilderness, they never saw him again. God is saying, I have taken your sin. I've removed it completely. You will never see this sin again. The story gets better. In 70 A.D., 70 AD. Rome attacks Jerusalem, destroys the city, destroys the temple. As a matter of fact, the temple has never been rebuilt since 70 AD. But interestingly, leading up to 70 AD, for the past 40 years, now remember, 40 is a significant number in Scripture. 40 is a number of testing and judgment. For the previous 40 years before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the cord, the scarlet cord, hung on the temple door when the scapegoat was led out into the wilderness where he would never be seen again by the people of Israel. The scarlet cord never turned white. The people believed, the priesthood believed, that when the priest, high priest cast lots for which goat would be which goat, if the lot fell to the Lord's goat in his right hand, that was a good sign. But if the lot for the Lord's goat ended up in the left hand, it was a bad sign for the last 40 years up leading up to 70 AD. The lot had fallen in the left hand. It was a sign to them that, that pending doom was out there. It was, it's just incredible. You say, well, 40, why 40 years? 70 minus 40, that's 30 AD. And if you realize that our calendars are off by about three or four years, something else happened in 30 AD. I will tell you another temple in Jerusalem was destroyed in 30 AD. 
In John chapter 2, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it again in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said, and then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. You see, the other temple was the death of Jesus. Once Jesus died, once the ultimate sacrifice had been paid, the scapegoat no longer had any control. The Lord's sacrifice no longer had any control because Jesus had paid it all. Now, I can see how a Christian could celebrate Passover or Pentecost or Tabernacles. I mean, after all, remember, folks, these are called the Lord's Feast, not Jewish Feast, the Lord's Feast. Pentecost was when the church was born. We can celebrate that. Passover is this beautiful time. Tabernacles is a joyous time. But the Day of Atonement, the Day of Atonement could never be celebrated by us as we find it in Scripture, for that would be an insult and an affront to Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews, looking back to the Day of Atonement in chapter 10, verse 3, writes this. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. Because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats. Impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, referring to Jesus had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Folks, what I want you to see this morning is on the Day of Atonement, it was just God's picture of what he was going to do when he sent his son. On the Day of Atonement, the people's sins weren't truly forgiven. God put them on hold, so to speak. Maybe rolled them ahead, whatever terminology you want to you understand. It was God's way of saying, the real thing is coming. The real sacrifice is coming. The real scapegoat is coming. Look to him. We could not celebrate the Day of Atonement like Scripture. But in the spirit of the Day of Atonement, we must consider that issue that strikes at our very hearts. How can an imperfect, sinful person be restored to a perfect, sinless God? It is a life-altering issue. You see, while I believe that God in Christ has done everything to reconcile us to him, we still have a part to play. Redemption is God's business. That's the ransom part, which he's paid. Our business, that's repentance. In looking back to the Day of Atonement, Dr. Robert Heidler writes this. He says, the sacrifice of the first goat pictures what Jesus accomplished on the cross. The sending of the second goat pictures what we do when we confess our sins to God. The word confess literally means to agree with. Confession means coming into agreement with God about our sin, and that includes a repentant spirit. Someone put it this way, confession without repentance is just bragging. Unfortunately, there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> Comedian Mike Gannis described his errant theology. He said when he was a kid, he used to pray for God to give him a bike, and then he determined that God didn't work that way, so he decided to steal a bike and then ask for forgiveness. <laughs> that may make for good comedy, but it makes for lousy theology. And yet, how often do we do that? How often do we rationalize repentance that way? Have you ever done that? I know this is a sin. 
I'll do it anyway and ask God to forgive me. I've done that. You've done that. But it's dangerous ground to stand on. You see, repentance is an attitude, a change of heart that leads to a change of life. We don't like to talk about repentance because it's an admission that there's something wrong, there's something broken, there's something sinful in us. To encourage repentance means a person, well, is lacking. And we just don't like to think that way. Even in our society today, we've come to believe societally that nobody has the right to tell somebody else that their behavior is wrong. You just can't do that in our culture anymore. But God says there's a right and a wrong. There is righteousness. There is sinfulness. And he knows that we are broken people. And so he has made the way for us through a perfect savior. And you say, well, well, what is repentance? Well, let me tell you what repentance is not. Repentance is not being sorry that you got caught. Some people appear to be sorry, but that's only because they've been found out. If given a chance to do it all over again, knowing they wouldn't be caught, they'd do it again. Repentance is not just a guilty feeling. I felt guilty for what I did, so therefore I must have repented. No. Judas felt guilty, but he didn't repent. Repentance is not an attempt to avoid the anger of God. How frequently we find it to be true that we will lie to God, that we will hide from God, and sometimes we just pretend that the deed never happened. I I don't think I really did that. I don't think I really thought that. I don't think I really said that. We just kind of pretend that, well, it just didn't happen. And if we tell ourselves that long enough, we come to believe that it really didn't happen. But that's not how you take care of your guilt and your sin. That's not repentance. So how do I know that I'm on the road to repentance? Well, there's a few signs along the path. First one's this. When I let go of my pride, that's when I know I'm on the road to repentance. When I let go of my pride. When we stop trying to be the one in charge of our lives and control everything our way, then we're learning what repentance is all about. Repentance will never happen until we are really honest with ourselves. Folks, I'd be a lot younger if I didn't look in the mirror. You know what I mean? I mean, if I never have to look in a mirror, I can delude myself. I know how I think up here. I know how I feel here. I I think I could convince myself I'm not nearly as old as I am. But the minute I look in the mirror, I'm confronted with the truth. And I cannot deny it any longer that age has a way of creeping up on all of us. You know, if I never look into God's word, I can convince myself I'm not too bad of a guy. You know, I'm not as bad as a lot of people I know. I don't do a lot of horrendous things. I'm not in trouble with the law. You know, I'm I'm a pretty good guy. And then I look into the word of God, which is a mirror that reflects what really is in my heart and life. And I see that I'm just as broken as anybody else. I'm just as sinful as anybody else. And I stand in need of a savior. You see, when I let go of my pride, that's when I begin to walk down the road of repentance. Here's something else. When I let go of the world, When the things of this life become less important than the things of God, then I know I'm on the right path. And when I let go of my temptation, when we make the tough choices, when we start cleaning up our act, when we do what is right to honor God and obey his word, then, then we're on the path to repentance. I remember in college the first ream of erasable bond paper I ever bought for my typewriter. Anybody know what erasable bond paper is? 
It was that special paper that you could actually use an eraser on. It would take the letter or the ink off the page without creating a hole in the typewriting paper. How many of you even remember typewriters? Let's start there, all right? Okay, all right. So I thought, I thought erasable bond was, was terrific. And then some genius came out with whiteout. Remember that? That little drop on the end of that brush that you could put on the page. It just blanked over, blotted out the misspell, and you could type over it. And then they came out with electric typewriters that had the, um, well, it was the self-correcting ribbon. So you typed in the wrong word, you hit backspace, and it would just take Pobold's letters right off of the page, and you could retype the letters that you wanted. None of the solutions was per perfect. Each, each left just a slight mark, maybe a little stain or a shadow where the mistake had been. But, oh, boy, it sure was easier than typing the whole page all over again. When we come to God in a spirit of genuine repentance, God erases, blots out, takes away our sin, pulls it right out of us. And while from a human standpoint, my sin often leaves a stain on my life, I have to live with the consequences of my sin for the rest of my life here. But God's work of forgiveness, perfect. He leaves no shadow of the offense. I will see it no more. John Ortberg writes, he said, wouldn't it be great if every spouse or friend or parent or child came with self-correcting technology? But the human race isn't self-correcting. In fact, we're self-destructing. But in his grace, God gave us one of his most amazing inventions, the gift of forgiveness. In a way, it is more powerful than whiteout. At the cross, Jesus not only covered sin, he also absolves it, pays the penalty for it, and removes it as far as east is from the west, end quote. Ah, oh, he's got it. You see, our circumstances demand, our situation demands, our sin demands that somebody with great expertise bridges what is a seemingly insurmountable divide between God and us. And so Jesus became the great negotiator. He became our covering, our atonement. He paid the ransom price and became our scapegoat that we might have life and have it everlastingly. He's, you see, all about saving lives, not losing them. And for that reason, I love this passage that Peter writes to the church because it marries what God has done with his patience and his grace to our need for repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow.